today what I want to do is wrap up a subject that we began in chapter 26. Chapter 26 began to deal with the issue of emotional troubleshooting. And we dealt with overcoming various negative emotional states. We began the very beginning of chapter 20, chapter 26 uh, by establishing the importance of joy, that joy is required, it is necessary for proper service of Hashem. We gave the metaphor of the wrestler who could not defeat an inferior opponent because of his mood. Then we started troubleshooting and we dealt with Sadness over material matters. That was the first half, half of 20, uh, chapter 26. We dealt with sadness over spiritual matters. That means guilt over past misdeeds. That was the second half of chapter 26. We dealt with shame. One who feels uh, sad about his impulses, things that he would like to do, although he does not do. That was chapter 27. Chapter 28, we dealt really specifically with somebody who's feeling bad about himself because of lack of concentration during prayer. Chapter 29, we started to deal with apathy. We talked about smashing through that apathy by becoming a master of accounts through an unflinching, self-scrutinizing process of uh, personal inventory. In chapter 30, we continued on that uh, path of uh, sort of knocking down the, the, the animal soul and uh, breaking through its complacency. And in chapter 30, we spoke about um, humility. See yourself as... Uh, now don't don't compare yourself to others as far as the results. Compare yourself to their struggle. You know, ask yourself how much effort you're putting in. Again, with the aim of cultivating humility. And then, chapter thirty-one, we spoke about channeling. There. Chapter thirty-one, we spoke about channeling some of these frustrations that obviously if you're going to really scrutinize yourself you may become frustrated and we said that was perfectly fine because bitterness is not sadness sadness is no good it is the enemy of productivity but bitterness can be channeled bitterness is sort of negativity in its uh, productive form and then what happened is, because we were talking about the identity shift that takes place when you're embracing frustration and bitterness, and we spoke about sort of maintaining two parallel tracks of emotion, right? That we're going to rejoice in our true selves, our godly soul, even while simultaneously being frustrated with our false ego self. Um, 
we transitioned into chapter 32, where we applied that same view of self to others. And that's how we achieved Avas Yisrael. We were able to have love that is not conditional or dependent upon a factor for every other Jew. Um, we were able to have love for every other Jew in, in a way that is not conditional or dependent upon a factor. How? By identifying with the very essence of each Jew as being various projections of one soul. Okay. And that was sort of an interruption to the flow. As you can see, if you look at the Tanya map, how the color of the joy chapter, starting in ch chapter 26, runs up till chapter 32. 32 then interrupts it and then stands alone as its own section. And then that same color picks up again in 33 and 34. I want to, I want to tell you something interesting, well at least it's interesting to me, that well, I originally created the Tanya map as, as sketches, as uh, pencil sketches on, on paper, on sheets of paper. And um, it was more complex than the version that was ultimately put out because not only were there sections of chapters, but there were subsections. And I believe at some places even sub-subsections. And that was deemed way too uh, granular for a poster. So we zoomed out a little bit and lost some of that detail. But structurally, everything was the same. Meaning the way that I had grouped the main groups of chapters remained the same from the original draft until the final draft, with one exception. There's one place where my grouping of the chapters was changed. And that is that I had chapters 26 through 31 being chapters focusing on joy. I had chapter 32 standing alone. And then what I had was chapter 33 beginning the topic of that means a dwelling place in the lower realms. And that that topic, dwell, the dwelling place, Hashem's dwelling place in the lower realms, in the physical world, continued through chapter 37. This draft was submitted to Rebbe Yoel Khan, who is probably the most renowned authority in Chabad teachings today. And he said, no, the subject of of making a dwelling place in the physical world for Hashem is really only 35, 36, and 37. And my question was, but hold on, chapters 33 and 34 specifically talk about this idea of making a dwelling place for Hashem in this world. And the Rabbi explained, yes, but 
the way that the topic of making a dwelling place for Hashem in the, in the physical world is dealt with in 33 and 34 is not as a subject in its own right, but rather as a cause for joy. So it's really a continuation of the theme begun in chapter 26, the importance of joy and methods for attaining it. I asked, but hold on. Chapter 32 came along and capped it off. It ended those chapters. To which he responded, yeah, it ended them, and then they pick up again. Because chapter 32 was an insertion that was made after the fact. It's an interruption. And the subject picks right up again after chapter 32. So that's why you see that the colors run from 26 to 31. They stop, but then they pick up again. The same color picks up again in 33 and 34. And what we have is sort of this overlap where 33 and 34 speak about the joy one has in providing a dwelling place for Hashem in this world. And 35, 36, and 37 speak about the concept of providing Hashem a dwelling place in the physical world. And because of that, you might think that 33 and 34 belong to and are the, uh, the beginning chapters and the subject of a dwelling place for Hashem in the physical world. However, in truth, chapters 33 and 34 are really a continuation and the culmination of the Tanya's discussion of joy only what specific cause for joy, the joy that one has in providing a dwelling place for Hashem in the physical world. Everyone follow that? Mm -hmm. So, 33 and 34 is about providing Hashem a dwelling place in the physical world, but it's contemplating on that subject as a means for cultivating joy, which is the subject that we started in 26, and we're now bringing to a close here in chapters 33 and 34, we will end the subject of joy, and then in 35, 36, and 37, we will continue to speak about creating a dwelling place for Hashem in the lower realms, but not as a means for creating joy, rather as a subject worthy of treatment unto itself. Mm -hmm. But it's circular, because you need joy in order to make a dwelling place down here. That is true. That you, you, the question is, is there a certain circular, you know, the, the, the beginning brings you back to the end, and the end brings you back to the beginning, um, to, to a certain extent, although uh, the focus in 35, 36, and 37 about how we actually create that dwelling place is different than how we create that dwelling place in 33 and 34. It's actually very different. And without getting a whole lot into... Um, what we're going to be learning in Hashem in 35, 36, and 37, I will tell you that the big difference is that 33 and 34 focus on a mental state, a meditation, um, a perspective that one adopts, and this provides Hashem the dwelling place. 35, 36, 37 is very, very specifically focused on the necessity to perform physical action to provide that dwelling place. So they are different.
No, no, I understand. One is feeling and one is action, but I'm just saying, how do you even start? Because you need to be joyous. Yes, and then, correct, and this, but uh, the point is 26 through 34, right. uh, we never graduate them because, as we established in the beginning of 26, that joy is the foundation for all of our service of God. So we always bring them with us at every juncture, correct? Okay. So now let's talk about these chapters. Wow, we didn't even get into the chapters yet. Okay, chapter 33. So now what's going to happen is this. We're going to shift. There's definitely a shift between 26 and 31 and 33 and 34. In addition to the fact that they are uh, separated by that interruption constituted by chapter 32, there's also a definite shift in approach. And I would maybe call it uh, reactive and proactive. That 26 through 31 really was dealing with troubleshooting. How do I defeat and overcome various causes for negative emotional states? 33 and 34 are more proactive in the sense that I'm not trying to counter any specific negative emotional state. Rather, these are just ways of <coughs> attaining joy as a as a goal unto itself. Now, I, I don't mean as a value unto itself, because as we already explained in chapter 26, the value of joy is how I apply it to my service of Hashem. So we're obviously, the, and, I, and I spoke about this at length in chapter 26, that it's not like the society around us that idolizes joy, as if joy has inherent value. The joy has value in as much as it is indispensable in the service of Hashem. What I mean by joy as a goal unto itself is I'm not countering a problem. I'm, I'm not pursuing joy as a solution to a problem. I'm pursuing joy as a... Uh, a as a, hmm? It's a means, really. As, but not because I'm addressing a specific issue that I'm having, but rather because joy is important in, in, in any case. Mm -hmm. It's important to be, to be joyous, uh, even if I'm not particularly uh, trying to counter any negative emotional state. Okay, so what is the joy in chapter 33? The, the joy in chapter 33, and I've already sort of uh, touched upon it, by saying that chapters 33 and 34 are about creating a dwelling place for Hashem in this world. I also mentioned, in passing, when I juxtaposed or contrasted 33 and 34 with 35, 36, and 37, and said that 33 and 34 are more about mental states, and 35, 36, and 37 are more about action. So combine the information, two points of information that you already have, it's about creating a dwelling place for Hashem in this world, and it entails adopting some form of perspective or mental uh, state. So basically, what is chapter 33? If you put those two things together, it's adopting a mental state that provides God a, world, a dwelling place in this world. 
and, and what is that? It's that one should think about the fact that this world, the existence of created entities, does not contradict the fact that God is present right here, and more than that, that everything that we experience, although we experience it as a creation, that is more our subjective experience. The objective reality is that Hashem and Hashem alone continues to be the only true existence. So Hashem is right here. Hashem is here. What do I mean Hashem is here? Not that He is found here in this location, but Hashem makes up the here. Everything that we know and everything we experience, although our default way of understanding it is as something other than Hashem, something made by Hashem or controlled by Hashem, the truth is it's a lot more than that. It is a projection of, an extension of Hashem himself. And how do we... Remember, this is this Chabad, so we don't just throw out tenets of faith and tell you, take my word for it. We explain it in a way that is uh, intellectually... Uh, tenable. So how do we wrap our heads around this concept that although there is a world and there's creation and there are created entities and we experience their reality so, um, I guess I guess it would be a truism to say so empirically, right? Isn't it a truism to say that we experience the phenomenological world in an empirical way? I guess that's sort of the definition of, of empiricism is the is what we experience with our senses but notwithstanding the fact that that is so real to us and and we are so sure that this has its own ontological independence here I'm throwing out the fancy philosophical terms but we what does it mean that we sense the world to have ontological independence? That it, it exists on its own. And, and the truth is, it does not. It may exist. It's not like an illusion, like Lahavdil, Eastern mysticism, which will say that you know, creation is an illusion. We don't say it's an illusion. It, it, it exists, but there is, a, there is a delusion that we have about its, the nature of its existence which is that it has its own existence. It exists, but not by dint of its own existence. Okay, so how does the al explain that? He gives us a couple of ways. One is to think about it like this. And if you remember when we were... Remember that bridge from 18 through 25 that I said we had to cross it really, really fast? We went, remember we went through 18 through 25 in one class? At breakneck speed. Okay, well, if you remember, chapters 20 and 21 were explaining the relative non-existence of created universes. 
Yeah, we went through that really quickly, but when we were trying, in 18 through 25, when we were trying to uh, adopt an all-or-nothing view of the mitzvahs, that every mitzvah is a proclamation of Hashem's absolute oneness, we defined oneness, so we helped ourselves to fathom a semblance of oneness by imagining how the worlds are completely nullified in relation to Hashem. And the example that we gave was like the speech of a person, a person's speech. That you wouldn't say that the person has a certain level of reality of existence, and then his speech has another level of reality of existence relative to his uh, level of reality of existence. Rather, a person's speech is, is not relative, is not comparable to the person. Uh, it has no existence of its own. It is nothing more than a projection of, an outward projection, of the person himself. So here too, in chapter 33, what we say is this. You should know that all of the creation of the worlds are like speech. It's just They're just about as uh, substantial and independent as a person's own speech. And in fact, not just the speech that per a person utters, but if you would imagine that speech, while it's still subsumed within the person before he has spoken it, that the speech that is still within his mind, or even before it's in his mind, when it's still an emotion that's yet unarticulated, that, that speech, or potential for speech, is so indistinguishable from the person who will eventually speak it, and has so little independent uh, existence that we wouldn't call the speech an existence that's lesser than the person who speaks it. It's not that it's lesser than relative to the person that speaks it. It has no existence for itself. It is nothing more than an, ex an extension of the existence of the person who speaks it. Okay, that's one way of visualizing it. He gives another metaphor, another visualization. And this one's a little bit more uh, tangible. Imagine a ray of sunlight. You... Imagine a ray of sunlight. The ray of sunlight is entering the room. And you know, you know that famous black and white photograph of Grand Central Station? Yeah. Okay. So I brought my kids, you know, bring bring your kid to work day. So I don't work in an office. The world is my office. <laughs> so I brought my kids to Manhattan with me uh, recently. And I brought them to Grand Central Station. And I showed them that picture. It's easy to pull up with a Google image search. And uh, it's, 
it's a beautiful photo. It captures the, I don't think this phenomenon occurs anymore because the buildings around Grand Central Station have been built up, but it captures how the rays of sun create these very distinct shafts of light that beam through these giant windows and they create these uh, boxes of, of light on the floor of the train station. So imagine if you were to sort of um, identify and label your sun ray. You know, it creates this distinct shaft of light, this beam. Imagine like you're the cat. The cat always finds the sunny spot. You know, he always finds where the light is coming through the window and creating that warm patch on the floor, right? And the cat crawls right in there. So you imagine your sun ray. You could even give it a name. Maybe you'll call it Ray. Okay? And you identify your sun ray. And then you start thinking to yourself, you know, I would love to see my sun ray in its natural habitat. If it is this glorious, gloriously warm and, and bright, 96 million miles away from its source, how much more glorious will this sun ray be in the sun where it comes from? And now imagine you take a rocket ship and you fly to the sun and, remember, and imagine that it's the first uh, rocket ship that can withstand the heat of the sun. So that's not a problem. So the heat is not a problem, but you have a different problem now. And there's really nothing we can do about it. When you get to the sun and you start looking for your sun ray, you find that in the sun there are no sun rays. Sun rays only exist as you get far away from the sun. But when you go into the sun, there are no sun rays. There's just sun. <laughs> now, th think about it like this. I want to clarify. This is not like a needle in a haystack. Or like, um, you know, where is Waldo? Right? You have... Uh, a needle and a haystack or where is Waldo are, are, are similar types of bittel nullification. Or, you know, uh, you know, the picture of the Kinesa Shluchem. You ever look at the picture of the Kinesa Shluchem and you look for, you know, your Shliach, you look for the one person that you know, and it's like, wow, I can't find him, he's just lost. It's where is Waldo phenomenon. That is not the bittel we're talking about because in that case, what we're talking about is um, that you can't find the thing that you're looking for because it is one of a thousand or a million or a billion or a trillion, like the needle in the haystack. In that case, it still exists, but it's just overwhelmed by the proportion. When we talk about the sun ray in the sun, we're not saying that you can't find the sun ray in the sun because there are too many other sun rays in the sun. You can't find the sun ray in the sun because there are no sun rays at all in the sun. There's only the sun. 
You follow? So the fact that there's a world and we experience its existence as a reality is akin to our experience of the sun ray when it's shining far away from the sun. If we were to trace it to its source, which is God's creative power that is bringing it into being at this moment, we would find not that creation is disproportionately overwhelmed by the size of God's creation, right? That the creation is X and God is a billion X or a trillion X. No. It's not being overwhelmed because of some greater proportion. It's a different type of nullification. It's the nullification of the sun ray in the sun where it loses its own identity. It does not continue to be an entity unto itself when it's in its source. And in fact, it reveals to us that the whole phenomenon of it taking on the appearance of an independent entity was only subjective, was only from our perspective. The world, really, and everything in it, and all of creation... We experience it from our subjective perspective as having existence unto itself, but really it's no more independent than the sun ray. Rabbi, is, that, is it similar to a projector? Is that sort of an analogy? You, you, you could use the projector as the analogy. Yeah, you could use, you could imagine it, yeah. The same phenomenon holds true. But like, like, are you saying that the sun itself is not necessarily hot, and it's the rays that are hot necessarily? No, no. no. But, or, because or like, the sun itself, right, that's... What I'm saying is, that if you were to label your sun ray, draw a circle around it, and then go trace, go straight up that sunbeam toward the sun, you will not find your sun ray in the sun. And the reason you will not find your sun ray in the sun is not because there are too many other sun rays, like losing your kid at the amusement park, and you can't find your kid because there's too many other kids. No, it's that there are no sun rays in the sun. A sun ray is a phenomenon which occurs only when sunlight shines away from the sun. So the appearance of created reality is a phenomenon which occurs when we are, so to speak, away, removed. Obviously, there's no, we're not speaking spatially. And also, we're not really talking about being removed from God because the whole point is there is no way of being removed from God. But when a filter is put in place where it feels like we are removed because God is hidden, and because God is hidden, the source is hidden, it's as if we are far away, and therefore we perceive the projection as something Separate. unto itself. But really, it does not exist unto itself. The point is that if you will meditate on this concept, 
and you will think about the fact that created reality possesses absolutely no interposition, no interruption to Hashem's infinite presence right here, then you will be happy. The whole point, let's make sure we don't get caught up in the uh, technicality of the meditation, because the truth is, the place where this is explained at length and in detail is in the second volume of Tanya. In Shad HaYichod V'Hamuna, it explains these concepts at length. Right now, we're, we're merely uh, touching upon it for a purpose, and the purpose is because it'll make us happy. If you think about the fact that Hashem is right here, Hashem is right here, there's no need to summon Him or call upon Him, He's right here. He couldn't be any closer than He is already. He's not up there in heaven. He's right here. Then you'll be happy. And what He says is, V'zeh kol ha'odam. This, this adopting the perspective that Hashem is right here in His world, which in a way gives Hashem a place in this world, although He's here whether or not subjectively you appreciate it, but there is a certain value in our recognizing it, like the old Kotzker Vort. You know, they asked the Kotzker, where is God? And he said, wherever you let Him in. Mm-hmm. So, by our understanding that God is right here, we are allowing God to be here. Or, as I heard other people say, God is a perfect gentleman. He only enters where he's been allowed in. Okay. Now, from another perspective, he doesn't need to be allowed in. He is all existence, so he's already there. But from the perspective of our Perception. Perception, we're allowing Hashem a place in this world. And and instead of the physical world being a mask that separates us from the reality of His absolute existence, we're, we're, we're realizing, no, creation is like the speech of the person who speaks it. Or creation is like the rays of the sun compared to the sun. Creation is just an extension of God himself. And, and the Al-Tarebbe says, when we will think about that, we will be happy. And not only will we, be, we will be happy, but we will be performing our purpose for which we were created. He says, This is the purpose, the entire purpose of a person. And the ultimate purpose for which he was created and it is the ultimate purpose for all of the worlds for which all the worlds were created, higher worlds and lower worlds, and what is that? that there should be for him for Hashem this dwelling in the lower realms which by the way is one of the twelve psukim the Rebbe chose 12 Torah verses 
Four of them are from uh, scripture, and four are from the, sa the sages, and four are from Tanya. So two of the four Tanya verses are from chapter 33. Why chapter 33? Because when the Rebbe launched the second uh, six of the 12 Psukim, it was Lagba Aimer, which is the 33rd day of the Aimer, and the Rebbe connected 33, the number 33 to 33. So two of the 12 Psukim are in chapter 33. Um, this is one of them. I'll tell you the other one in a moment. Okay. I want to ask yeah. back to the speech um, analogy. Yeah. This is all understandable and, and we can accept it mm -hmm. when things are okay. But when there's a huge tragedy or something. Yeah, but it's not talking about that. But it's very often people say, where was God when? Okay, but that's, that's not what we're talking about. If you have problems, if something's bothering you, go back to chapter 26. This is not for when something's bothering you. This is not a theodicy. This is not for comforting you, you know, where is God when it hurts and all that kind of stuff. That's not what this is about. If you're having questions about, uh, you know, how could God allow whatever, go back to chapter 26. Yeah? I'm sort of paraphrasing in my mind the way I'm hearing it is that knowing that God is always here, and there is no question about that, when the day is not going the way you would like it, it is exactly what God planned mm -hmm. for you that day. Is that have any Yeah, but let me, let me add to it. Not just when the day is not going like you'd like it, you remember, but hold on, it's all divine providence. God's not just putting everything exactly where he wants it. Um, God is creating everything, the whole situation at this moment. That's part of it, but it's even just as you go through the day, And we're oblivious to the godliness that's around us, we should stop and take note of it. Mm. You know, I, I hate to uh, invoke such references, but I remember one time hearing uh, an audio recording of a press conference that uh, Timothy Leary gave. I think it was after he left Harvard and he became uh, a big advocate for, for LSD. and Well, it was clearly after he became a big advocate for LSD. And uh, so he gets off the plane and he's surrounded by reporters. He, he was the homme du jour. He was the... He was big news, at least, you know, he had his 15 minutes. And one of the reporters asks uh, something about, uh, I think, a... Uh, mind-blowing experience or something like that or a, a, a conscious widening experience and, uh, and then another reporter says when's the last time you had a conscious widening experience and he said I'm having one right now mm. Now he might have meant that he was under the influence at that moment which <laughs> very well could be I, I, I took it to mean that he was sort of chiding the reporters and saying, you guys are so lascivious. You just want to hear about my drug exploits. Don't you understand what I'm trying to teach is that we should be mindful at all times. And like right now, this experience itself can be a mind-blowing experience. Uh, that's how I took it. And it was, why am I telling you this? Because I don't, 
think that Timothy Leary was particularly a uh, good person or, a, or had a great message or anything like that. Uh, so I would argue that if, if he was able to say that a consciousness-widened experience should be accessible at all times, then Lahavdil, how much more so somebody who is trying to live according to the will of God, that we should be able to have this consciousness-widening experience at all times. So as you go about your day, and we take for granted uh, our experiences, and they appear mundane to us, they are not. God is right here. That should blow our minds. And more than just blowing our minds and making us, uh, you know, uh, inspired, but it, it, it should make us happy. You should feel happy. And let me just continue with the happiness here. He says, imagine, he gives a parable, imagine a commoner who was somehow chosen to be the host for a king, that a king wanted to leave his palace for whatever reason, and the king needed lodging, and the commoner was given the opportunity to host the king. The commoner, and obviously we're talking about you know a real king, somebody who's majestic and who the entire nation looks up to. It's hard for us to relate to these king parables, but king means a great person, person that, that you actually revere. And imagine that this person seeks lodging with you, Every moment that the king is living with you is a cause for great joy. And, and, and furthermore, the Alter Rebbe continues and says, when we say, which is part of the, the, the morning prayers, when we say, how fortunate are we? How good is our, is our, is our portion? That refers to, and we should have in mind, that we are able, all of us, to be the hosts of the king at any time. And how do we act as hosts? Merely by being mindful, by being conscious of Hashem's imminent presence here in his creation. So if you will make space for him, mentally make space for him, by realizing that he is right here, then in a certain way that is making space for him and that is hosting him and that is giving him a dwelling place in this lowest world which will make you happy and then he calls it a doubled and redoubled joy because not only are you happy that you have Hashem in your life but Hashem is happy this is what Hashem likes Hashem gets joy now, why is Hashem getting joy? It explains that for Hashem, what's the great joy? The great joy is the Yisana Oira Bomina Cheshech. King Solomon said, I saw the advantage of light. Let's translate it as over dark. Oir Mina But there are different ways of translating that and explaining it. One way of explaining it is, I saw the advantage of light over dark. Light's better than dark. That's not so deep, though, because everyone knows that light's better than dark. Another way of explaining it is, well, it's subjective. If you sit in the dark for a while and then you come out, you'll appreciate the light. So, I appreciated light because of dark. 
Another way of explaining it, and this is the way the Chassidus explains it, is Oyer doesn't mean light in its superiority, uh, how light is greater than darkness. Oyer doesn't just mean light is greater than darkness, although it can be translated that way. Oyer can also mean, literally, light that comes from dark. What is light that comes from dark? Light that's made out of dark. We don't have a parallel phenomenon in the physical world because all we can do is replace darkness with light. The room was dark, we turned on the light, the light filled the room and replaced the darkness. But if you can imagine quantifying the darkness and then inverting it somehow and turning that darkness into light and then turning on the lights so now you have more light than you would ever have had if it hadn't been dark in the first place because you have the normal light plus the special light which is darkness that got turned into light maybe so maybe you appreciate the light because no, you had no no that i just said that's not what it means mm-hmm. what about growth from no the no no that's not what we're talking about i just said it the first interpretation i thought we we're going to get to 34 today i guess not <laughs> The first interpretation is light's better than dark. Okay? Yeah, no kidding. The second is that light is appreciated more when you've experienced dark. But that's only subjective. The third interpretation is what, what is the greatest light? Yisena'ir, the greatest light is minachayshech, light that comes from dark, that's made out of dark transformed darkness. So what is he describing here? When you're put in a world, the word for world is olam, right? I involve lam and mem, olam, which is from the word halam, which means concealment. A world is a concealment. The world masks the reality so that we see creation instead of creator. And yet, in the place of that darkness, and the greatest darkness, because this is not just a world, it's the lowest world. And if you imagine, each world compounds the concealment of the previous world. So imagine translucent curtains on a window. If you have enough of them, eventually they become opaque. The effect is opacity. So this world is like a dark room. And yet, imagine, once we realize it clicks for us, that there is no independent existence to worlds, that Hashem is right here in the world, and that Hashem is the world, true achdos Hashem, the oneness of God, that God doesn't just run the world and control the world, but the world has no independent existence, it's only an extension of God, like the speech of a person, while it's still in his brain, or like the rays of the sun, when we trace them to the sun, then we will realize that Hashem is right here, and the world no longer obscures, but the world becomes a way of relating to Hashem's presence. That is a conversion of darkness into light. That gives Hashem joy. So that's the double and redoubled joy. I'm happy that I have brought Hashem so close into my life. 
Hashem is happy that he gets to be right here in this world. That's double and redoubled joy. And in fact, it's not just two happinesses, because doubled and redoubled, you fold the paper and fold it again, that's four. I'm happy for myself that Hashem is in my life. And I realize that the world is not an obstruction to that. Hashem is happy for himself, that he gets to be in this world. That's two happinesses. I'm happy for his happiness. He's happy for my happiness. That's four happinesses. And that's, that's how we can conclude chapter 33. We say, and this is the second of the two psukim, from the 12 psukim that come from chapter 33, we say, Yismach Yisroel Ba'isov. That a Jewish person should rejoice in his maker. Perish, this means, Shekol Mishu Mezeri Yisroel, anyone who is of the Jewish people, Yeshle Lismayach Besimchas Hashem. He should be happy in Hashem's happiness. So not just my own happiness, like the commoner who gets, gets to host the king. But imagine the king actually likes staying with you. So now I'm not just happy for myself that I get to host the king. I'm happy for the king that the king is getting to stay where he wants to stay. Bottom line, let's sum it up in one sentence, okay? You want to be happy? Think about the fact that the worlds are no interruption to Hashem's presence right here in your life. And you are his host. You have that opportunity. That'll make you happy. And then think about the fact the place where Hashem most wants to be is in this world, and that's making him happy. So now, you're happy, he's happy, you're happy for yourself, he's happy for himself, you're happy for him, he's happy for you. Four happinesses, doubled and redoubled. Okay? All right.